Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast, a discussion of your weekly roundups on top programmatic and digital news with other programmatic ninjas. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You'll find everything we'll discuss today, including expert information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. In the Sunset's Corner this week, we are giving you the highlights and lowlights of Adweek's very first Next Tech conference. And who best to help us go over them but the true DMP OG, Anna Milicevic. Anna is an accomplished entrepreneur, versatile executive, and digital technology innovator. As a principal and co-founder of Sparrow Advisors, Anna helps marketers and C-suite executives build effective data products and operationalize data assets to drive more value in a customer-centric cross-channel environment. Ms. Milosevic was responsible for the development of DemDeck platform, now Adobe Audience Manager, from its early days through its successful integration into Adobe Digital Marketing Suite. She's a pioneer of digital data management, the mother and ultimate OG to DMPs. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Anna. We're so excited to have the Khaleesi of DMP joining us today. Hello, hello. <laughs> do you watch uh, Game of Thrones? <laughs> I do. Oh my god. Okay, great. So so many accolades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're officially the Khaleesi of DMPs. <laughs> I was thinking that a very, very blonde hairstyle is uh, coming up next in my future. Mm-hmm. So this is a good good segue into that. <laughs> okay, we support that. We support that. That's another sign. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Our discussion this week is based on Adweek's inaugural Next Tech conference with uh, via various articles recapping the highlights of different panels. And so the first article I'd like to bring up is one of your panel you participated in. It's an article from Mindy Smiley called Brands Could Kneecap Themselves Without the Right Talent on In-House Programmatic Teams. <laughs> the article was a recap based on the panel, David versus Goliath panel, where you were on it with Sloan Border from Accenture Interactive and Matt Prohanska from Prohanska Consulting, moderated by Adwick's Patrick Coffey, or Kofi. The panel addressed the challenges regarding bringing the programmatic in-house. You pointed out in that in order to fulfill some of those positions, the talent would have to have some level of experience that is direct applicable experience in the programmatic world. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Can you give our listeners and myself that couldn't attend the conference your point of view on the panel? Yeah, sure. It was a, a really great panel. Uh, so, you know, there are a variety of different consultancies that one can hire in the programmatic space. And usually some of uh, some folks are more focused on uh, very kind of hands to keyboard stuff. You know, oh, ouch, I have a problem with this particular tool or maybe my logs don't align. Can you send somebody to help? Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, on the, the kind of the the other uh, side of this is uh, strategy and management consulting, which is what we do, but also what some of the larger consultancies do, uh, which uh, takes you from anywhere from, hey, should I be investing in this particular channel? Uh, how should I be investing? How should I be structuring my team, my stack, my um, you know, su- supporting infrastructure to really take advantage of programmatic as a channel? Uh, and so with the purview that we have, what we're seeing with customers and with our clients is that there's a bit of a challenge to find 
folks who've had the right kind of experience uh, with programmatic, even though programmatic is now in its teens as a medium. That's true. There's still, yeah, it's, it's you know, <laughs> puberty. Um, <laughs> it's it's really a, a challenge to find the right type of practitioner for you. There are a lot of folks who focus on very, very tactical implementation details. And what we're seeing increasingly is uh, brands, agencies, and technology companies alike have a challenge of integrating programmatic with their other pursuits. And this is usually the, the breaking point at least at this at this point in time. So, you know, to ensure that we have a, a healthy industry, everybody needs to invest and in some cases over-invest in training, uh, building up experience of your own staff, but also being really mindful of what your teams look like, how they're incentivized, and really what you want them to learn and execute on. And uh, there's uh, still a, a long ways to go to, to make sure that there's enough folks with the right kind of experience to be able to do some of these more advanced things that we're, we're now starting to entertain, like in-housing and you know supporting programmatic uh, almost entirely in-house or through some type of hybrid mechanism. So it's, you know, it's great news if you have a lot of experience in programmatic, uh, the, the 10 people out there that have a lot of experience <laughs> in programmatic are very much in demand, but, uh, but there is a, a pretty, pretty steep learning curve because it, it does tend to be one of those things that you can only really learn on the job. Yeah. And uh, th- that's a, a bit of a limiting factor for us now. I heard a few things that I want to address. I'm always very divided when I am interviewing for uh, a company or an agency. My background is in agencies, of course, but it's almost mind blown how the agency's model is we need somebody that has that much experience. But once that person is in-house, obviously the reason why that person is so experienced is because they were consistently and continually trained. And that's not something agencies tend to continue, you know, making sure that they invest. On, like, I mean, you just mentioned that making sure that we invest in that training for that person, whether it's level one or level 10. Always mind blowing to me when I, I hear and I help somebody get referred here and there and help out uh, with some talent acquisition. With, and they're always like, we just really need somebody that has the width and then the, the heart to want to learn but ultimately is is it is a big investment for the agency to take out of <laughs> their busy time and schedule to make sure that that person is brought up to speed yeah it, it really is but uh, you know agencies uh, or traditional agencies love to talk about how their you know core advantage are their people and oh, then yeah. they end up <laughs> completely under investing in in developing uh, their people as a resource so something something has to give in in that scenario and you know, it's very easy for consultancies to come in and uh, siphon off all of the best people from agencies. And this is largely what led to Accenture's expansion and a you know, very quick path to market significance because they have been, and it's not just them, it's also Deloitte and basically everybody who's as of late come into the space has applied a very wise recruiting uh, technology, <laughs> which is really looking at underutilized folks and just making sure that they're better supported and have a better offer. And I keep waiting for traditional media agencies to wake up and uh, hopefully start investing more in their staff and some have, but maybe a little bit yeah. too late in some cases. And really the kind of the mid tier to smaller uh, niche agencies are really, really feeling this uh, competence crunch, let's say. <laughs> 
I mean, it makes sense because during the panel, and, and that was in the article as well, you also mentioned how some marketers or brands are considering outsourcing, which is in line with what you and I are both saying. Just wanted to make sure I understood because I, I know there are freelance networks out there such as We Are Rosie, actually, it was really successful. In my opinion, slowly but surely disrupting the industry, Stephanie Nettie Olson is a founder, mm -hmm. and she believes that bringing the right talent for marketing agency and brands while ushering in the future work. And basically, she puts that that those freelancers in an environment that is comfortable for them to thrive. Mm -hmm. You are likely to reach out to a Stephanie or that is what your company is based on. So on project based help and assist in fulfilling that blank that mm -hmm. some of those agency or media companies are going through versus just bringing it in house. Yeah, absolutely. So we're big fans of Stephanie's uh, at, at Sparrow. We have not had a chance to work together yet, but uh, that's really because we have our own uh, network of uh, uh, people from you know just right. our mm -hmm. our past past lives and experiences who were hitting a wall in their existing roles. They're either feeling not challenged enough, or they want uh, yeah. more flexibility. And so you know we we maintain. Uh, a very tight network of folks who are all vetted, all people that we can personally vouch for. And then we developed certain frameworks to ensure that they can very effectively work with clients, represent uh, our, our company well. And uh, that's the, the model that, that we're taking to market. We're reinventing what uh, management consultancy means in, in 2019 and making sure that folks have uh, ready access to really a high quality, unique expertise that they might not need on a full-time basis or might not be able to afford right. on a full-time basis, if we're being honest, but, you know, to make sure that they're not filling a position where somebody's being asked to architect an entire marketing channel by some junior person, because that's the only model that they can think of. So right. we, seems seems to be working for now. Uh, we we like it, and uh, we we're very bullish on it in, in long term. I absolutely support and respect that model. I think that will be the next thing that, again, I think is going to be a disruptor in the industry. I'll entertain some conversation and it goes like, oh, you have to be in office. And I know for a fact that I can be anywhere in the world as long as I have Wi-Fi in my Mac. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a programmatic ninja, ninja strategist. I'm a programmatic ninja trader. So I know for a fact, all I have to do is log into DSP, log into that DMP, have access to emails and conference uh, technologies to be able to do it really good job always crazy how the recruiter will come back and say actually you have to be in-house but I, I read <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's really it's still early enough the discussion and of course some agencies and the, like you said the traditional agencies have their own way our generation is doing a much more better job to really thinking outside of box and adapting to any type of environment I'm very curious about how, how things are going to be in five years from now even <laughs> next year I'm pretty sure we'll have a different type of conversation and hence or complementing of this one. Yeah. And it's interesting. That was one of the things that we discussed in the uh, Adweek Next Tech panel as well is, you know, there's really no one size fits all solution here. Oh, it, yeah, there's yeah, going to sure. be folks who are you know doing really well and maybe taking things in house. There's going to be those that are implementing some type of hybrid. And then there's going to be those that are you know, still insisting on a very old school approach to maybe everybody's mm -hmm. in one office, everybody show up at 9am every morning and that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, when you look at uh, 
really, really talented people, they always have options. So it's going to become increasingly difficult to hire for companies that don't think through this process and don't think about uh, flexibility and what people need long term. And this is where the training and, and, and learning and coaching component comes into play as well. Because again, if a company isn't ready to make a continued investment in you as a professional, then, you know, if you're a a good professional, you have other options and you can move along. So it's going to to really stratify the ecosystem uh, that way pretty quickly, I think. And so if we're having this conversation in three to five years, I think that split will be much, much more obvious uh, than it perhaps is today. I think we still have that expectation of, you know, there is a lot of business that, that gets done in New York, in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, true, you know, yeah. Detroit. But outside mm-hmm. of that, uh, it, it's, it's you know, maybe a few other, other regional pockets, but that's about it. Yeah. So like, if you want to do something true cutting, that's really cutting edge, you have to be in one of these five places. Well, guess what? The world's a really, really big place. So that doesn't necessarily have to be the case anymore. <laughs> No, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's a great point. It's a very, definitely a great point. Um, so we'll, we'll move on to the next topic here. It's a, an article from Shoshana Wudinski, how advertisers are untangling the programmatic Whoa. supply chain. <laughs> so another hot topic from the conference <laughs> was where Adweek reporter Patrick Cope discussed supply chain management techniques, including some of the latest cleanup efforts. This panel included Jamie Byram, Nationwide Insurance, Chris Gain from Juice Media, Amanda Martin from Goodway Group. The article covers how marketers are becoming selective with the ad tech partners they choose. Panelist Amanda Martin, VP of Enterprise Partnership at Goodway Group said, and I'm quoting, Three years ago, it used to be about cutting out fraud. Now it's about looking at the intermediary position that players like SSBs, supply-side platforms, are playing. She also adds, this isn't about looking for something obfuscated, but it's about taking a magnifying glass to bids once they leave the DSP. A lot happening beyond the top that you should know about. There's wrappers, exchanges, and validations. With your background in data management and product development, what are your thoughts on this particular issue? <laughs> she's, she's spot on. And, and that panel was, uh, I thought, very interesting yeah. because I, as with most things, there's a certain pendulum here. And, you know, in ad tech uh, and in, in some corners of MarTech, Initially, we're all very, let's all be friends, let's all work with everybody, let's integrate with every single other provider possible and make sure that we're not restricting any buyer's choice, for example, by, you know, technology, a lack of technology integration. So that led to a really, really strange scenario where you had uh, publishers working with multiple different SSPs loads of different DSPs running in parallel, basically people bidding against each other. And really these really strange scenarios where it's, it becomes very clear that people just didn't think things through enough and were just very excited that this space was evolving and wanted to you know, try a lot of different things. So we recently had a conversation with somebody who you know, woke up one day and realized that they were working with uh, 10 different DSPs. And I, I had trouble naming 10 DSPs that are relevant today. And <laughs> I, like, you should have seen my face. I, I took a back. What? I brought yes. a raise right away. And, 
I, I would understand that, but you know, when we pushed them on what the the strategy behind this was, they really had no answer because it's not like there's a unique buyer that's only working with a particular DSP exclusively, and that's who you want to target. It was all kind of the, the same stuff, and so it, the the pendulum is now swinging in the other direction, which is okay. So we had this super loosey goosey ecosystem. Let's put some guardrails now and start to rein it in a little bit. So the whole concept of supply path optimization on, on the supply side and kind of mirroring what uh, header bidding and wrappers kicked off on, on the other end. And uh, it, it's all an attempt to get more clarity and uh, control over what's actually happening because the, the ecosystem was so overly friendly. It's, it's very possible that you know folks still have things that are firing uh, on their their digital properties from companies that are no longer in business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is you're you're like you're hitting the the nail on the head because I've worked for agencies that did use a handful of DSPs and some of them were not. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I might not, scratch that one off. Not above board. <laughs> Not above board. There you go. And one of the reasons why I would ask, you know, the manager or whoever was leading that team at that time, why would you not investing the time and, you know, budget to look at one main DSP that pretty much checks off most of what is needed internally, build that partnership with that DSP. It can be one or two because not like you said, it's not a size one size fit all. But you, we, we can build some type of partnership with one or two DSPs and move from there. But I'm talking about like the, the 10 DSP is crazy. <laughs> this agency only had about five or six. However, some were managed by the DSP. Some were fulfilled in-house. I can't tell you, maybe two of those five DSPs have absolute transparency on how the campaign was executed which is super scary yeah. to me with my you know with my, my background in programmatic I what do you mean I can't view where you're buying what do you mean the report is not going to include which um, data partner is sending me which segment or how the segment is being segmented yes. no pun intended like what do you mean and and some of those partners I've talked to well that's just how it is the technology is proprietary it's in-house so we don't have a view yeah <laughs> what that is not a good use <laughs> what do you mean it's proprietary because it's proprietary to you you should have a way because nobody else know of that technology you should have a way to give me view access to see how things are going on the back end and i think that's why some of those agencies are in brands are bringing a team in-house to to kind of pack some of those transparency issues but at the same time it doesn't sound as easy as yes. <laughs> they're thinking it is but i definitely think that that's one of the main or one of the many reason why some brands are thinking about bringing their this a team an in-house programmatic team or developing an in-house programmatic team because of the lack of transparency that some of those agencies are offering to those service clients whether it's transparency on how the data is collected transparency of how we're actually performing or transparency of on spend and how we're being charged like even inventory budget mm -hmm. inventories it's just it's just too much it's just too much 
No, you're, you're spot on. And, and we're seeing, thankfully, we're seeing an, an increase in, in inbound requests uh, this year of folks who are looking at reevaluating their core technology. So maybe they used several DSPs for the last couple of years and now want to consolidate on one, maybe two, or, you know, have a regional DSP uh, for, for some other regions, regions outside go. of the yeah. U.S. or that kind of stuff. And the same is happening across a variety of different technologies. So it's now uh, usually the folks who bought uh, DMPs very early on or in one of the first waves are now reevaluating their needs where starting to see more activity around ad servers as well because for the first time in a long time there are now options beyond google oh yeah yeah so so there's a lot of activity and a, i think a, a higher awareness on this front of wait a minute am i using the right stuff so we're, we're seeing mm-hmm. an increase in like hey can we do a stack audit or i want to specifically look at vendor selection for this type of technology and those are really really interesting projects for us because they they really give you a sense of which direction the uh, ecosystem is is uh, going and how it's evolving and then you're right a lot of the hey we should take this in house is really a reaction to uh, years of a rocky relationship with traditional media agencies and rocky is not the right word but tenuous is because many of the larger media agencies just have not been able to deliver the kind of uh, service that large brands who are maybe on the more mature side of uh, data maturity and uh, adoption of data technologies need and uh, they really have no choice but to take matters into their own hands, uh, at least to some extent. And these are all uh, very connected trends that we're seeing, and they're all kind of speaking to the same uh, type of gap in the market that uh, has presented itself. Right. And and I do want to give the, the benefit of the doubt for the, the, the other agencies out there that do have more than five partners. I know also that some of the, this, they are put in this situation because some of those DSPs can only fulfill to a certain extent. So they'll have like a mobile focused DSP or partner. They'll have like a DMP that's tied into Google. They'll have, um, you know, a different uh, partner that's able to fulfill beyond Facebook when it comes mm-hmm. to social strategies. So it makes sense when you divide and conquer that way like this we want to make sure that we're working with the expert so there's a balance and i think that's what chris kane also mentioned he said this isn't about buyer outmaneuvering publishers this is about working together more efficiently we need to reframe the conversation around that I think that this panel was really interesting and I was following some of the tweets and the comments and most of the the audience that attended that panel as well kind of aligned and had those same type of comments with the panelists. Yeah, Yeah. it's exactly that. It's, you know, we're at the stage, again, teenage programmatic is now, uh, you know, we, we can afford to take some time to reevaluate and recheck Mm -hmm. some of the early assumptions when we were still in the, you know, wild, wild west, anything goes kind of approach. And that's exactly (laughs) what's, what's happening kind of across the board now. And it's going to have, you know, some losers, but lots of winners. And I think it's a natural pruning, really a natural pruning process to make sure that the successful companies and the companies that uh, uh, have something truly differentiating in market are the ones that, that deserve everybody's attention attention and unfortunately there's quite a few of those that won't make it but uh, it it is part of the natural process of consolidation absolutely you have to adapt you have to adapt Mm -hmm. with the with the changes and i think the next article is um 
aligns somewhat with what we've been discussing so far. It's an article from Marty Swant, how Google is thinking about its upcoming changes for user privacy. Oh, this was and such Go- a good panel. It was super interesting. Oh, okay. I'm glad you did because <laughs> yeah. I have so many questions about good, it. Good, good. So, Ronan Shield, at Adweek staff writer, had a one-on-one panel with Shetna Bindra, Google's senior product manager focused on privacy issues. Bindra confirmed that Chrome users will have better visibility and basically control over how their own data is accessed by like programmatic ninjas while balancing the need to keep the sector commercially viable. What's your thoughts there, since... <laughs> Well, let me just take you, let, let you take over. What, what, what were your thoughts during this panel? Uh, I, I thought there's one thing that Bindra said that was that really stuck with me, and I, I don't think it made it into Marty's recap. But uh, she was asked uh-huh. at the end, uh, somewhere near the end of, of the conversation, about her title, and, and she's a, I think, a senior product manager for privacy. Uh, that's her formal title. And so the question was, why does she sit in the product organization? And, and she uh, had a really great answer on how this is really meant to be like privacy by design and, and making sure that uh, every potential user need is reflected and uh, factored in into every aspect of their design. And when I think about Google and Facebook and the share of market that they have uh, and that they will continue to command if uh, we look at how uh, revenue, uh, overall digital revenue has been evolving is that uh, they can really set the tone for the entire market and everybody right. else has uh, no other choice but to follow. <laughs> so, yes. so whatever they say goes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's very rare to have that type of uh, overwhelming dominance. And in this case, somewhat split between yeah, yeah, just, just two companies. So I, I hope that they're making moves that make walled gardens a clear choice and uh, at the expense of a more open advertising ecosystem. And, and I hope that there is a strong argument for the open advertising ecosystem as well, because I, I don't think we... Uh, benefit much from going full on walled garden. I think we lose a lot of uh, the initial, uh, well, the initial promise of what an open internet looked like <laughs> and, and how uh, how it could be commercialized. But but yeah, right. but uh, it, it's oh. interesting to see Google kind of iterate through a number of changes that uh, on on their own may seem not terribly impactful, but in quick succession, one after another, can really really uh, disrupt. Uh, disrupts not not a good word here, but really kind of uh, shake up exactly shake up. <laughs> how how things are going. And what's going on. So it, it's it's really formidable to have that type of influence uh, on an entire industry. That's a very interesting point of view because I guess she said, and I'm quoting that there's a natural tendency as the ad tech industry has evolved to say. Let's collect as much data as we can. And there's sort of this shift to how does one make sure we are collecting in a transparency Mm -hmm. fashion the minimal amount of data needed to make sure an experience is relevant to the user. And that's, Mm -hmm. again, quoting from Bindra. And that made me think about what I've been seeing in the last few months in the news on like media posts, ad exchanger, ad week about how companies are, I mean, sorry, ad techs are trying to focus on really the quality of data and Mm -hmm. not so much about big data. 
one that stood out to me was the Washington Post and the fact that they're building or have been building this yes. platform <laughs> called Zeus. And basically, they're predicting that it will be a cookie-less option for mm -hmm. programmatic ninjas like myself. And so Zeus is like, as I understand, is a hyper-contextual targeting yes. on steroids, <laughs> basically. Cookie-less option. Do you think there is a silver lining to collecting minimal data and hyper-targetability? So it, it's an interesting question because I, I do agree that we've been very fancy free on data collection. And for a number of years, the credo was kind of like, let's collect everything we possibly can and we'll figure out what to do with it later. You know, when you look at high profile hacks like the Equifax one, like Capital One, like oh, we, yeah. we go That's back. pretty recent. Yeah, yeah. It, it's literally, there's, there's a spectacular one every month and uh, the, the cadence yeah. is probably going <laughs> to increase. Yes. Because there is no regulatory framework for this type of uh, data collection and, you know, looking at GDPR in Europe, we're, we're kind of all scowling at it like, ha, this is, you know, maybe not the best solution out there. But I give them a lot of credit for trying to put something, something together that actually does make sense from a consumer perspective more so than, than it makes sense from any other perspective. And, you know, of course, it's... It has its flaws, but it is, a, I think, a good, strong first step that other legislators are, are, and regulators are going to look to follow. And, you know, in the U.S., we have the CCPA as the first example. Yeah, so that that is uh, uh, clearly coming down the pike. I worry that we're now, again, going to see the pendulum swing completely in the other direction and, and come up with very restrictive ways. And basically, no one can use any data for any reason whatsoever because we've been burned by some bad actors and just bad, badly designed policy. We are so <laughs> but, uh, shit out I, of luck if this happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I think, you know, when I, and I think about advertising in general outside of uh, any specific channel. And I actually, I have a keynote about this that um, it's called a, a future without advertising, which mm. I love to give to advertising professionals. Nice. <laughs> scare okay. them a little bit. Okay. But it, it's really about how humans like storytelling and we've always liked to hear about new things and learn about new things. And somehow in this very technocentric quest to optimize and hyper-optimize certain digital channels, we seem to have completely lost the plot on storytelling. And I, I think the advertising environment of the future is less, oh, this is advertising versus this is content versus this is something else. But, but that's all kind of more seamless and that every interaction with a brand really becomes a form of advertising. So if I walk into the local branch of my bank, that's advertising as well. And if I you know, see a film with some product placement, that's advertising as well. And, and every possible interaction will be a form of advertising. So in long term, I'm bullish on advertising. Short term, I think that there's a lot of refinement to be done in these very technologically advanced disciplines like uh, data-driven targeting and uh, places where we can effectively serve a creative to somebody within fractions of a second of them exhibiting some type of behavior. But, you know, to quote Jurassic Park poorly, we, we don't, we never really stop to think whether we should do something once we can do it. <laughs> and that, I think that's, that's what we, we need to do now is really ask ourselves, does it really still make sense to 
you know, bombard somebody with retargeting ads after mm. they've immediately, mm. you know, abandoned cart or left or, oh or done gosh. something like that. So it's it's very uh, kind of a lot of uh, time for reflection and self-evaluation, I think, over the next couple of years. Yes. Like we say... Uh... I've, I I was going to say you're <laughs> preaching to the choir like and I was going to tell you a little louder for the people in the back because that is so much <laughs> truth and knowledge dropped in less, less than <laughs> two minutes. The listeners on the podcast have heard me say as programmatic ninjas and that incorporates anybody that touched some type of programmatic and digital technology to do their job. It is our responsibility, our job within our souls to make sure that we protect the brand integrity and enhance the consumer journey or the customer journey. It is so important. And I've also complained in the like the last uh, episode with um, Matthew Silverman, where I was telling him and sharing how frustrating it is to, to get retargeted by mm. a partner that <laughs> yes. I work with. And, and I've, I've reached out to several of them telling them, listen, I am actually look at your roster, like uh, go ahead and exclude yeah. our IP address at this point. Cause I see your ad everywhere. I think it's, there's no such things as wasted impression, but yeah. in your case, it is wasted. It's up to us. We have to make sure we utilize things like frequency. We have to make sure that the tracking is implemented correctly and that somebody goes back in and out. It's not just like set it and forget it. Somebody has to go back and make sure that it's optimizing that strategy. So yeah, it's, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Love it. On that note, we should move on to the next <laughs> next sure. article. I'll, I'll just say it just for, for sort of a, a parting note from this one. I, I think it's a great impulse to say if you're Google, hey, we should all collect less data on users when they collect a tremendous amount of data. And uh, because, you know, it stays in the realm of, of their walled garden, it's somehow okay. But uh, I, I think that, you know, there's a, a, a case here to be made. Uh, okay, sure, we should all collect less data, but you first as well. <laughs> I don't like when others are just pointing. Oh, yeah. Like, this, <laughs> Google is doing this. Facebook is doing this. Like, okay, they are doing really bad out there, let me yeah. tell you. But we, it's also up to us to actually do the hard work and get our hands dirty. Yeah. So our last articles here before we move <laughs> on to the next segment and then we close. It's kind of a fun article from Sarah Jurdy, why a surprise drop can be a great marketing ploy for brands. And this was a panel oh, yes. with Peter Naylor, SVP of advertising sales at Hulu with uh -huh. Adweek's Kelsey Sutton. And basically he explained how a surprise drop or a surprise release can be a marketing ploy for brands, artists, and companies to stand out out of that crowded content marketplace. Hulu just dropped the new Veronica Mars season starring Kristen Bell, I believe a week before the fans were expecting it. Then they did something similar as well when um, Netflix was releasing their fire, I guess the their fire mm -hmm. festival documentary. Hulu went ahead and, and released theirs a week before Netflix did. And of course, the ultimate mm -hmm. queen, Beyonce, um, she is <laughs> indeed the queen of surprises, especially with her latest live album, The Homecoming on Netflix. So beyond the whole content create you know this is definitely content and ott and connected tv world which i think i'm very i want to know a little bit more about where we stand according to you know the khaleesi of dmps where is this this content mixed with ott is coming in but is that a mini attempt to increase 
their family of yeah, subscribers. Yeah, I think it's a, it was a really, really wise uh, strategy. And so uh, I, I love Peter Naylor. I, I think he's he's incredibly smart and just always so spot on in, in his and uh, uh, everything he says. But <laughs> he also taught us that uh, uh, fans of Veronica Mars are called marshmallows. <laughs> oh, is that why? It was it was in the article, but I didn't put the two and two. And so I was like, I'm sure I'm going to come across a tweet that would explain this later. So I yeah. went <laughs> I, I don't I don't watch the show I I it, it's I don't, I, I don't either <laughs> uh, it'll it'll be on uh, you know a catch up list at some point and I hope to get to it because it seems to be a really really good show but uh, yeah, yeah so I, I think it's uh, it's part and parcel of in an era of content abundance you know we went from oh, like having yes. uh, you know everybody watching the same like Thursday night 8 p.m. you watch the same like three or four shows and yes. there, there wasn't that much else to do and then you know on on friday morning you'd come into work and if you hadn't watched the shows there was nothing to talk about with your colleague (laughs) and uh and now there is just so much good content out there that it changes the equation it it's very tough to point to like must have content and this is a a, another uh argument I, i keep making especially for content creators and content owners is that you know you mentioned game of thrones a couple of times that very well may prove to be the last show that was a must follow must watch show of the scale that it it achieved because oh, yeah. uh, one. It, yes because now you still have you, you can pick four shows that you want to watch and there'll be enough people worldwide who are watching those four shows for you to have uh, you know a, a cogent conversation and and a community around them and they don't have to be the same four shows that your neighbor watches that your colleagues watch that your family watches there's just so much good content out there that your allegiances can be to very different types of of content and i think you know to to peter's point in that type of environment, you really have to do and think about things differently to really capture someone's attention. And you have to create this type of, a, of an interesting moment. And uh, what Hulu have been able to do is, uh, through these uh, surprise drops, really drum up more interest and engagement around shows that would still get watched, but maybe wouldn't see that type of a spike in interest and, and activity. And uh, those types of uh, spikes tend to be pretty critical when you're trying to get uh, new people to watch something and, you know, kind of trying to, to get converts into the marshmallow universe. <laughs> uh, so oh, it, it's nice to see them experimenting with it because for the longest time we had the, you know, either it's uh, once a week or however many episodes there are per season, you, you know, you get one once a week and that's it. And then Netflix flipped that with uh, the introduction of binging. And since then, we haven't really had a lot of experimentation with formats and and things like that. And uh, it's nice to see Hulu try different things. No further questions. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to move on to the next segment where we like to shine our diversity light on an agency, a brand, a creative, or anything related that has done diversity right or wrong. Do you have something in mind or one in mind that you'd like to share with us? So I, it just so happens that I think a, a day or two ago, it was announced that uh, uh, 
underwear manufacturer Lively was acquired uh, by by Waco. Oh yeah, Japanese uh, brand is it? Yes. So uh, Lively was uh, created by a former executive at Victoria's Secret who uh, I think she started the company in, uh, I want to say 2016. It was a very quick exit. And, you know, she she took her know-how from uh, Victoria's Secret and and realized that there was a a gap in how uh, women's underwear was being taken to market. And if you look at their their campaigns and if you look at how they present their their, their, uh, garments, it was this wonderful happy representation of every possible body type and uh, skin color. And like, it, it looked like, you know, the nicest, the most realistic presentation of humanity that one can think of. And it was pretty much the exact opposite of that very overproduced male gaze, Victoria's Secret uh, <laughs> uh, approach. And uh, they went the, the direct-to-consumer route, and they had some uh, retail partnerships as well. But it was a very successful exit, uh, especially looking at the uh, uh, amount of money that they had raised uh, and the kind of the, the speed of, of acquisition. So the, I think they, they're my, my highlight for this week, certainly. It was a very, very interesting company to, to track and follow. And I think that clearly what differentiated them was that ability to tell a story where everybody felt included and everybody felt like they could be their customer. Yeah, they went beyond the status quo. Mm-hmm. I, I read the art, a couple articles on that and I was like, hmm, this is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing this with us. Now, in closing, do you mind sharing three fun facts about yourself in less than 20 seconds? Ooh. <laughs> uh, I love to travel and uh, my uh, all of my roles have been global. And now with uh, Sparrow, right. I, I get to uh, run our f- uh, flyaway business. <laughs> so nice. we are on... Uh, uh, five continents or six continents now. It, it, the only one that we're not on is Antarctica, and that's because uh, penguins don't really do uh, advertising of any kind just yet. But oh, uh, how dare they? I know it will come. Ho- to hopefully Canada. soon. I'm pre- I'm preparing a fact finding mission kind of <laughs> soon. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Serbia. But I've uh, been a New Yorker for a really, really long time. And I think that's that's my my main identity is that. Uh, and uh, I really, really uh, love working with my uh, partner and sister, uh, Maya. She's amazing. And uh, I, I think we, we get a lot of uh, questions along the lines of what's it like to work with your sibling. And uh, let me tell you, if Maya is your sibling, it is the most fabulous thing in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so get yourself a Maya is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I have two Mayas. Oh. I have an older Maya, I have a younger Maya, and I have a a very a baby Maya. Oh, baby brother. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, but my sisters are absolutely absolutely my world. I mean, we don't always get along when we're all cooking at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do think that we could be productive and efficient when we want to. Yeah, it, it's wonderful. It's, it's just a, an entirely new level of trust. I mean, I've, I've always been very fortunate in my career that there are a lot of people who uh, I really enjoyed working with and would, you know, work again in a heartbeat and have worked repeatedly with. But uh, but it's just a, a whole other level when it's uh, it's somebody who's 
really literally your relative and uh, and you have a, a good and, and productive uh, relationship. And I think in our case, it works because our, our skill sets are very complementary to one another, uh, probably be a bit more difficult if like we were twins or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're taking family business to the next level. I love it. We are. <laughs> So lastly, any parting advice for any freshman ninjas getting into the industry, like quick to do's or don't, maybe a tip you learn along the way? Ooh, uh, I think, uh, you know, be curious and question everything. <laughs> If something doesn't make sense to you, just keep asking why, 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 until you get a good enough answer that you can, you can work with. And this is really critically important. There's a lot of complexity in this space and a lot of it gets swept under the rug because uh, either folks don't feel comfortable enough or supported enough to really ask, well, you know, wait a minute, why are we working with 10 partners and not two? And it just kind of leads to a, a cascade of poor decisions <laughs> that way. And so I think the, the folks who really are able to maintain curiosity and have that really rigorous desire to understand not just the how, but also the why uh, are going to be very long-term successful. Uh, it's a space that evolves very, very quickly. So you, you have to always be on your toes. You always have to be learning and, and you know, looking at what the next thing that's going to come out of left field. Uh, it's not a space for people who are like, all right, I, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to, you know, I know what I'm doing now and I'm just going to coast yeah. on it for a while. That That's, nope, go somewhere else. Then, <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it is it is uh, definitely very rewarding and a lot of fun if uh, if you have that. Uh, that curiosity. Oh yeah, you're, you're going to have a lot of fun getting into this industry. Nothing yeah. is, <laughs> nothing is steady. Nothing is consistent, and also, unfortunately, and also, nothing happens the same day happens. Never happens twice. Yes. So, <laughs> um, very powerful tips. Thank you for sharing. And again, don't be a yes ma'am, no ma'am. Question everything in the most diplomatic and the most most uh, peaceful and kind way you can in order for you to understand really what's going on. So thank you so much for joining us today, Anna. Uh, we're so hyped and honored that you you made the time this week. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This is a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, when you go and talk to other folks, when uh, maybe your listeners who are looking at the data programmatic and overall advertising at TechMartech space and have a problem, have a challenge, you know, reach out. That's what we're here to, yeah. to do. We're here to help with complex problems. We'll figure out how to help you and not break the bank. <laughs> I'll have Anna's information in the show notes, everything that we discuss and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. Please take a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you sh you're streaming this podcast and share with anyone you know that can benefit from it. In conclusion, fam, we're all human working in a fast advancing industry. So as a gentle reminder, we're not saving lives. At the end of the day, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlight diversity, and educate ourselves as we build this community of programmatic ninjas or family, as we would say in my African culture. Stay confident.